With that said, we left off last week in Luke chapter 3, and we, we didn't, <laughs> I talked too much earlier, so during Luke 3, so now we're, we're going to pick up in the middle of Luke 3, and I think we're just, I'm just going to expound on what I uh, was going to do last week, and we'll save four for next week, um, Luke chapter 3. And uh, so John, to, to pick up where we left off last week, John was baptizing down the Jordan. John came uh, doing his ministry, and we, we spoke about John's ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord, and he was out in the wilderness. Now, John is going to be doing ministry for six months prior to Jesus' arrival. He'll be proclaiming uh, that the, uh, to prepare their hearts for the kingdom of God, to repent and prepare yourselves, and uh, then we're going to see Jesus come on the scene, and then we'll see John have six more months and then be arrested and eventually beheaded. Uh, Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, may we understand more about you. May we understand more about your kingdom and the wonderful revelation it is and the just the beautiful access we've been given through you. Lord, teach us now, and may, may we be proclaimers like John, that hearts might be prepared and we might be able to share that you have come, that you have rescued the sinner, you paid the price for us and redeemed us on that cross, and you rose from the dead. Lord, we're privileged to be part of this ministry of reconciliation. So bless this time now and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a picture here of a baptism at the Jordan. I actually had the opportunity to do this last February. Uh, this is Elmer. Uh, he wanted to make a, just a, identify as a follower. He's already a believer and he's been baptized, but he wanted to be baptized there in the Jordan. But this actually recently opened up this area of the Jordan River. It was closed for a long time because of minefields between um, uh, Jordan and Israel during the Six-Day War. And so they finally cleared out all the mines and they opened it up. And this probably was where both Israel would have crossed over the Jordan and where Jesus would have been baptized. Very clean, refreshing water. <laughs> well, it's a little murky. But uh, it actually was really cold because <laughs> uh, it was February. But uh, uh, maybe some of you can come with us to Israel and, and you can experience that yourself. But uh, th- that kind of gives you the idea. I, I, w- I wish I would have taken a, a wide shot so you could have seen it better. But you can look it up online. And, and that's probably where uh, Jesus... Uh, John would have been baptizing and where Jesus would have come and and been baptized. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 3 says, Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now, in these two verses, there is a lot here, and so we're going to take our time with these two verses tonight, but I want to remind you what baptism is. Baptism is about identification. That is the main purpose for baptism, and the word literally means to dip in something or to dye cloth. That's what the word would, if, if the King James translator would have translated the word perfectly, they would have said, uh, now when all the people were dipped or when they were dyed. But they took that word from the Greek, baptizo, and they, they kind of uh, transliterated it into the English, and we got the word baptized from it. 
But it's about identity. And we, re- we, we saw earlier that John's baptism, his call to repentance, and the preparation for the Lord's coming was calling people to turn from their sin, to repent and prepare themselves for the kingdom of God. So everyone who was being baptized by John was preparing themselves for, for this kingdom, the, the, the kingdom of God coming. And uh, so today the believer's baptism is different. We're to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's about identity with Jesus. That's what our baptism is today. It's different from John's baptism. And you can see other baptisms in Scripture that are spoken about. But when we're baptized as believers, we're both identified with Jesus in his death. The Bible tells us that it's a symbol of going into the grave and a symbol of being raised up to new life with Jesus. So we're identified with both his death and his resurrection. And so verse 21 tells us when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. Now, we have to answer this question, why was Jesus baptized? It's it's one of those questions that's a tough one theologically, and I don't know that any of us can give a specific answer. I'm going to share a couple passages with you, and hopefully it'll give us an idea. And I want to say right out of the gate why I believe Jesus was baptized. I believe Jesus was not identifying himself as a sinner, repenting and preparing for the kingdom, but Jesus was actually identifying with us. The sinners. He, in, in every way, Jesus uh, identifies with us. And so when we go over to Matthew chapter 3, we get a little bit more information. Luke gives a very brief uh, snapshot of Jesus' baptism. But in Luke, when Jesus arrived with John the Baptist, sorry, in Matthew, when Jesus arrived, he, and was ready to be baptized, John actually hesitated and didn't want, to be, didn't want to be the one to baptize Jesus. In fact, John said, well, I should be baptizing you, or you should be baptizing me. And it's interesting because from John's gospel, we recognize that, or we realize that John actually didn't recognize his cousin. Uh, so in some way, Jesus grew up in obscurity. No one knew him. John certainly didn't know him. A couple of times it's stated that John didn't recognize his own cousin, that they uh, obviously, Mary and Elizabeth knew each other, and I'm sure John knew that his, his cousin was Messiah, but other than that, they didn't seem to rec- uh, John had no rec- recognition of Jesus. Well, in Matthew 3.15 we read, but Jesus answered and said to John the Baptist, permit it to be so now. That means you baptize me. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And so we see Jesus actually gave a statement about why he needed to be baptized. That this is going to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, I I, I think there's a lot of speculation about it. It doesn't mean that Jesus was made righteous in that moment. Certainly that's not the case. But I think it's really about him identifying with us so that we might be made righteous through his work. Isaiah 53 is obviously an incredible passage about the suffering Messiah. It's a beautiful passage. It, it, it marks out for us all the events of Jesus' crucifixion and death. But in Isaiah 53, there is a verse, in verse 11, 
It says, Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so in Isaiah 53, as I, you can leave that up for a minute, if you don't mind, Addie. Um, by the way, Addie, thanks for you, both you and Richard. Thank you guys for coming right back from camping all weekend, and now you're serving back there in the booth. We appreciate you guys. Um, in Isaiah 53, 11, as, I, as Isaiah the prophet is giving this word from the Lord, we see there's two, group, two people represented, well, one person and one people. The person is the righteous one, and that's speaking of Jesus, that he's going to bear their iniquities. But look what he's going to do, make many to be accounted as righteous. So there's the people he's going to account as righteous. And I, I believe that this is a part of Jesus saying that this needs to fulfill all righteousness in Matthew is it's also a direct correlation to Isaiah 53. I'm coming to fulfill this, that through this work and my identifying with you, many are going to be made righteous and that I'm going to bear your iniquity. So I encourage you later on, read through Isaiah 53 and just meditate on that passage because there's so much there. Actually, uh, throughout uh, the latter half of Isaiah, there's so much about Messiah and what he will do. But there's one little verse that I believe references both to his baptism and to his uh, redemptive work on that cross. And so Jesus had, had been also baptized. Now, uh, as he's being baptized, we have this event happen. And I believe that this is what Luke is trying to draw our attention to. And that is the testimony of God the, God the Father. That is the testimony from heaven of who Jesus is. And I think Luke slimmed down the whole baptism to this so that you and I, he just say, this is who Jesus is. Now, look at what it says. Um, as he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, it doesn't say that he was a dove. It says like a dove representation. Um, so whatever that looked like, I don't fully know. Uh, maybe it did look like a dove, but it looked like a special dove. I, I, I don't know. But, but this is just the, the eyewitness testimony is like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So here's the testimony of God. That, that Jesus is his beloved son. With him, he's well pleased. And of course, we have the dove descending on him. Uh, <clears throat> let me take you back over to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is an interesting psalm. Psalm 2 is this, it's almost like a, a conversation with the Trinity, with uh, the Father and the Son in heaven. It, it's an interesting psalm. But verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay? And why that's important is as the Jews are there, as they're witnessing these events happening, there, there's testimony after testimony for the Jews from heaven 
that this is the one who was prophesied about. This is the righteous one, the branch of Jesse. This is the anointed one, the Messiah. This is the one you're waiting for. And so uh, Psalm 2 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the idea here is that, okay, now we're hearing a word from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So again, we see that God is pleased with his beloved son. Pleased is an important idea too. Because pleased is another attribute of Messiah or the anointed one. I'm going to take you to another prophecy. I know we're hitting a lot of prophecy tonight, but I I want you to see this fulfillment. Isaiah 42, verse 1. We go back to Isaiah about Messiah. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, uh, we read about how Messiah is going to be the righteous one. Just taking a minute to get it up here. And you can always turn your Bibles old school. It, it works. You can use your flippers, your thumbs. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Did I forget to give that one to you guys? I apologize if I did. So it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Part of Isaiah 42 is also that this servant, the Messiah, will fulfill the, the, the righteous requirements. But notice that this, this prophecy says, my soul delights in him, and I've put my spirit upon him. So once again, as we see the events happening at Jesus' baptism, that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, do you, do you think that God wanted people to see this event happen? Yes, absolutely he did. He wanted them to be able to connect this because how can you see a spirit descending upon someone? You can't. Okay, I'll put my spirit upon him. How do we know that? How do we test that? I mean, certainly we could see like uh, testify through miracles, which we see. But God actually gives an event that the people can see with their own eyes The spirit descending upon him like a dove. Heaven opens up. Heaven's speaking. He's the one who who pleases God. Oh, hey, Isaiah prophesied Messiah. In in him, God delights. um, God delights in Messiah. Now, this is important for us because Jesus, this happens again later on in Jesus' ministry when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is transfigured before Matthew, or sorry, uh, Peter, James, and John. And at that moment, too, uh, we, we, we know in the story of the transfiguration that both Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus, and they were speaking to Jesus. And Peter said, oh, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Can we build three tabernacles or tents, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses? And uh, now the idea of building tents, I mean, we've always kind of tossed that around theologically, why he wanted to build tents. Was he trying to set up like a place of worship, like the tabernacle of the Old Testament? Or was Peter saying, man, let's not leave. Let's set up camp here. We're not going anywhere. When Jesus had an appointment and a place to be in Jerusalem, because we know from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus begins heading to the cross. He, heads, he heads, starts heading to Jerusalem. Not sure totally. But we do know that Peter was elevating both Moses and Elijah with Jesus. But what I love about that story is we read that 
as he was still speaking, a voice, a cloud overshadowed them, a bright cloud, and a voice came from heaven. And I love how God just graciously just cuts Peter off. I'm just cutting you off. Uh, and, And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I love that, that, you know, when that happens, we read that the disciples fell down with their faces to the ground in great fear. And eventually when they look back up, they see no one but Jesus only. And Jesus <laughs> lets them get up and, and they start walking down the mountain. But, but the idea there is that, again, God testified both at the beginning of his ministry and toward the end of his ministry, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, at the Mount of Transfiguration, we get the added words, listen to him. And I, I think it's very possible that maybe those words were even for Peter. <laughs> Peter, just shut up. <laughs> just, just listen to Jesus. I don't know. I'm, I'm, that's total speculation. But, but the idea here is that Jesus pleases God. It's Jesus who's the one who pleases God. You, you and I might try to do things to please God, but, but we have to realize as believers, we already please God in Jesus Christ. That, that's a beautiful truth that every believer needs to, to not only understand, but also own that you please God just by being in Jesus. If, if you believed in Jesus, you please God because God sees you through Christ. It's, it's amazing how just by believing, because oftentimes when it comes to to uh, spiritual acts, we want to do something, right? That's not what we always want to do. Anytime someone's sick, we want to do something, right? What are the words we always say to somebody who's grieving or gone through some sort of loss or is in some sort of hardship? We say, let me know if I can do anything, right? Because we don't know, but we, wanna, we feel like we need to do something because we want to. Uh, and, and so that's same with spiritual things. We're always like, hey, what can I do, God? What can I do and, and, um, and, and really what it is is know Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's what we do. And so when we know Jesus, when we believe in him, we please God because he alone pleases God. Outside of Jesus, we read that all of our works are like filthy rags. And a, a more uh, explicit translation might be like uh, minstrel rags. That would be our, they're just filthy they're, they're, no, they're not good for anything. That's your righteous works. But in Jesus Christ, our righteous works are wonderful gifts and offerings to God. Outside of Jesus Christ, it's filthiness because we're sinners. And so we might try to do, we might try to achieve good status outside of Christ, but we never can because we're in sin. And, and we're, we're, we're gonna be judged for our sin. But in Christ... We're forgiven. He's paid the price for our sin. Now, you might feel that, hey, I, sometimes I, I don't really feel like I, I've done right by Christ. I, I, I've sinned or I've, I've stumbled at this point or I, I went back to doing this thing. And I, I want you to realize that positionally you're in Christ, that he is your savior. So in that idea is although you might not see the victory God does because he sees you clothed in Christ. I know it's a hard idea to understand because, again, we want to bring religion into it. We want to do something. 
But, but all we can do is just know Jesus, just love Jesus. And then the doing comes as the result of the knowing. The doing in our lives comes as the fruit of the knowing him. We just know him. We, we love him, we walk with him, and we start doing. Because we just, he starts manifesting himself in our lives through our actions. And so with Jesus, the Father is well pleased. And we can only please God through the Father. John 14, 6 says, uh, I am the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one option. So I know the popular idea here is that all religions end up at the same place. All religions are going to get you to the same location. Well, first of all, it doesn't even make sense. That's for someone who doesn't know anything about world religions. It's just a way to appease myself and say I don't need to to know anything about Jesus because if you understand about world religions, you would understand that most world religions don't even have the idea of the same place. And uh, certainly like when you compare Islam and Christianity about paradise, they're very different, (laughs) very different. Uh, What Islam considers paradise and what Christianity considers paradise or eternity or eternal life. When when you compare uh, Hinduism with Christianity, you see that really the ultimate goal is to not exist, that you become part of Brahman. And, and so so they, they, the idea is really that there's no you. You are an illusion. The, the, the I, the self, is really just an illusion. Ultimately, you're just going to become part of Brahman. It's not even close to what Christianity speaks about. God created you. The Bible tells us that you're uh, knit together in your mother's womb. You're wonderfully made. It's a special creation that God has done. I don't understand it. I don't know how it works. But we just know it does. That God God has uh, created this process through, through the fertilization of the egg and the endowment of the soul. And I don't know. But, but it happens. And that, that you, the individual, are really, you really do exist. When you look in the mirror and say, that's I or me, that really is you. And God knows you, the Bible tells us. In fact, we read in the scriptures that Jesus knows the very, the Father knows the very hairs on our head. I've noticed I'm starting to lose some more here in the front as I'm getting older. And other hairs are going gray, but guess what? God knows every numbered hair on my head. More, he knows that, the idea is he knows me more intimately than I know myself. So he knows my name, the Bible tells us. So God knows us very well. We're, we're not lost upon God. And we want God to please God. And so as John says, I am the, and Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father through me. We can't say that all religions are going to get there because, one, all religions don't want to get there. Two, Jesus says, I'm the only way. So we have to come to the conclusion either Jesus is a liar, a charlatan, or he really is the way, that he really is Messiah. And I want to say this, that God has gone to, gone to great lengths through hundreds of years of prophecy that his people would know this is Messiah. 
And this is an event here, right here at the Jordan River, right where you saw that picture of the baptism, that, that this is the place that, that God testified to his people, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, if we want to please God, we know him. Now, what about the dove? I want to speak a little bit about the dove. I told you this is a rich passage. Um, the dove, descending on him like a dove, it's interesting, the first time we see a dove in Scripture, anybody know where it is? Yeah, someone said it back there first, Noah's Ark. First time we see a dove, a dove in Scripture. And, and um, why do we see that dove in Scripture? You guys remember? To look for land, right? And, and uh, Noah sends out the dove, and the dove returns. Sends out the dove again, and what happens? Anybody remember? Brings back this olive branch, okay? Genesis 8, verse 11 through 12. Then, and the dove came back uh, to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So as this dove goes out and comes back with this olive leaf, Noah knew that the floodwaters had subsided. What was the flood in the first place? It was God's judgment. Remember? Remember that God said, "My soul, I, I won't contend with man any longer. 120 years, that's it. And, and, and then, then, of course, we read that God uh, spoke to Noah, commanded Noah to build the ark, brought in the animals. Noah spent 100 years building this ark. It was a testimony before all the people that God was going to judge the earth. In fact, we read later in Hebrews that Noah is this testimony to people that judgment was coming. And Peter also, Second Peter that God was going to send this deluge or this flood to destroy the earth because of man's sin. It was judgment. But the dove is the first sign of God's fulfillment of promise that he would carry Noah through the judgment. The dove is the first sign bringing that olive leaf to Noah that the judgment is over and, and that God has peace with Noah. And so I, I, this, it might be a little speculation on my part, I, got, I have to admit, but I find it interesting that the first time we read about a dove in Scripture is here at the end of a judgment when God is, is, has brought Noah safely through and he has, has made all of his promises come true, that we also see that on the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit descended in, on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And again, it could be speculation on my part, but I, I, uh, I think that that's an interesting uh, parallel in Scripture. You can do with it what you want, but I, I think that uh, we know that, if, that through Jesus Christ, God is pleased. Through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God, and we're actually adopted as sons and daughters. And of course, in his kingdom, we become heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And it's a, a beautiful story through the work of Jesus Christ. All right. Now, one last, uh, another thing I want to bring up here, and the, the, this is where we're going to get a little technical. I give you these sheets. 
And the reason I give you these sheets is because this is one of the most amazing moments of the revelation of the Trinity of God. Now, we use the, we call it the doctrine of the Trinity in theology. You're never going to find the word Trinity in Scripture. It doesn't, it's, you'll never find that word. It's a term that we use to describe what God has revealed to us, okay? So, so there's certain theological terms that you'll never find them in Scripture, but we use them to try to under, to, to explain or define what scripture reveals, okay? Now, we know that God uh, begins revealing himself to man even in the Old Testament, right? Uh, Genesis and so on. But, but we read later on that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. That if we want to know the Father, we need to know Jesus. If we don't know Jesus, we can't know the Father, okay? That's an important idea to understand. And so how do we put this together? Well, First of all, we need to understand that there is only one God. Uh, That's an important doctrine to understand. God the Father is God. There is only one God. God the Son is God. There is only one God. God the Holy Spirit is God. There is only one God. Did that sound repetitive there? Uh, Maybe a little bit. But you have to understand that I want to give it to you as Scripture affirms it and try to keep my own terminology out of this. Because I've learned as I've worked with people over the years, and especially in foreign countries, uh, too much terminology makes a mess of this doctrine. So we're going to affirm what Scripture teaches. One, it would be an error to state that God becomes the Son or God becomes the, the Spirit. That would be a mistake. God the Father becomes the Spirit. God the Father becomes the Son, or vice versa. It would also be an error to state that the Father is the Son, or the Father is the Spirit. Certainly the Father is God, and there is only one God. And the Son is God, but not the Father, and there is only one God. Do you you understand what what I'm doing here? Now, as we get into some of these scriptures, we're only going to look at this real quickly, or, or we'll look at a few verses here. I want you to realize that we don't have to explain it, okay? We have, to under, we have to recognize what God reveals and affirm it, okay? There are doctrines in Scripture that we will never fully understand. For instance, how God works salvation out. Uh, theologians have been arguing about it for hundreds of years. <laughs> We're not going to solve it. This, this is God's work. Uh, we don't have to fully understand, and if we try to explain away the doctrine of the Trinity, we usually get ourselves in trouble and we accidentally start a cult, or maybe some purposely start a cult. So we don't want to do that either, okay? And so I want to look at this first verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, and I, I gave you some of these scriptures. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, this is the great Shema, and, and it comes from here. Here is Shema in Hebrew. Uh, so hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. So this is important. One God. That's a really important doctrine. And then uh, go ahead and go to that next passage. In Isaiah, we read 40, in 45 verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you through you, though you do not know me. And this is important because, again, there is no other God beside God. There's one God no other beside him. So we don't want to get in error and start saying that there's three gods. That would be a total error. There's one God, 
okay? And you can read the rest of the scriptures there that, that explain there is one God. Go ahead and go to the next passage. All right. Romans 3.29 says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And then uh, it says, Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? And so here Paul, as he's giving his argument for justification through faith, he's saying that there's one God. That's it. And, and some have tried to promote that Paul has started this idea of the Trinity. It's totally false. It's just what heretics say to get stuff going. Anyway, uh, that's not false. That's totally false at all. Paul himself said there's one God. Okay, go to the next verse. <clears throat> Psalm eighty nine twenty six. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And so we see that. The Father is God. There's one God. The Father is God. We've got that. That's easy. Go to the next verse. Matthew 6, 9. Jesus said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. All right, Jesus taught us to pray this way. We pray to the Father, our Father in heaven. Okay? Who's in heaven? Our Father. God. Okay, there's one God. It's easy. The Father is God. Next verse. John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus says, I'll pray to the Father, and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit, okay, who will be with you forever. Next verse. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, uh, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So again, uh, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we cry out, we can cry out, God, Father, Abba, Daddy. Okay? Next verse. All right, John sixteen seven. We read, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus speaking. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Oh, that's interesting. Who did we read was going to send the helper earlier? Anybody remember? The Father. Jesus would ask the Father. And now we see that Jesus said, I will send him. Okay. Go to the next verse. Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing on riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this verse, I think, is, I I chose this verse as kind of a summary verse because I think this verse really is an interesting verse. First of all, if you go back to the beginning of that verse, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Uh, the word there is kurios in the Greek for Lord, and it means, it means Lord, okay? And it can mean, kurios can mean both uh, Lord like my king or my master, and it can also mean a reference to God, Lord, kurios, okay? And in the New Testament, they began kind of switching over the term kurios for Lord to also use it for the, uh, the name of Yahweh, 
Okay, so when, when they would translate the Septuagint, the Old Testament version in Greek, 250 years prior to Christ, where that's when that translation got started, they started using that word kurios. And I know you, I'm totally geeking out up here, but just hang with me for a minute. So, uh, so we're told here, confessing in your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are saying, well, he, he is like uh, your master. That's what we're supposed to confess. Him as master, not as God or Yahweh. Well, if you go down to this verse, the very last part of this verse is, as Paul is saying that we, we, we call upon Jesus as Lord, he, Paul's actually quoting from Joel here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul's quoting directly from Joel. And in Joel, that name Lord is Je- Jehovah or Yahweh, okay? And, and so here Paul is saying, using that interchangeably for who? For Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. There's one God. God the Father is God. There's only one God. God the Son is God. There's only one God. But God the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. There is only one God. Are we getting this? Okay. Hopefully you're not falling asleep. <laughs> Hope you're getting this. Okay. Go to the next verse. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Speaking of Jesus Christ. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Is that the last that part of the verse? Yeah, I think so. Okay, sorry. I forgot about verse 19. And so Colossians helps us understand that, well, Jesus, by him all things were created. By him all things hold together. By him God redeemed you. And by him uh, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay? Jesus is God. Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus is God the Son. There's only one God. And, uh, but, and the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. There's only one God. Next verse. Acts 5.3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, this is important. Go back to the first part of that verse for me, Addy. Uh, this, this verse is important because sometimes people are prone to think that the Holy Spirit is an it, a force. But what we see here in this passage is it's a, it, the Holy Spirit is a he. And, and he can be lied to. Holy Spirit is not the Son. Holy Spirit is not the Father. There's only one God. The Holy Spirit is God. You understand what we all get in this? Hopefully you're as confused as I am. It's good. But notice that, that we're both reading that you can lie to the Holy Spirit. And in the very following verse, verse 4, said that you've lied to God. It's important. Next verse. I think that might be. Oh, I got another one. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, identifying them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I command, as it goes on to say. So the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. 
The Son is God. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Father is God. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, not the Son. There is only one God. Okay, that's what Scripture teaches. So I don't know how to explain it. I know in Sunday school they showed us a hard-boiled egg, and they said, look, there's a yolk, a white, and a shell. But it, it still doesn't make sense. Okay, then they tried to show me an ice cube and said, look, an ice cube can be both liquid and steam and, and ice. It still didn't make sense. It all fell short. Uh, as far as I know, I can only be one. One uh, is me. And, and you can't be me and I can't be you and we can't be together. It's a, it doesn't work. And so all we can do is affirm what the Scripture teaches on the subject. And I recognize we're going into deep territory here, but really what I wanted to just to give you this seat is a Bible study for you. It's really just for you to check out and read and, under, and, and say, okay, God, I believe it to be true. That's it. This is true. Now, here, here's what we do with it. This is what we know cults or heretics or, or heresies or those who would try to twist the faith or go off into a weird territory or territory that is not biblical. That's part of one of the first things they try to deny is the, the deity of Christ. And it's been happening forever. In fact, it's what Santa Claus slapped Arius for at the Council of Nicaea. It was St. Nicholas, not really Santa Claus. But, but he, he's, he uh, was so upset at Arius because Arius was claiming this idea of uh, that, that the son and the father were not of the same essence. They were of a, a like essence. And, and St. Nicholas slapped him. He later apologized. He, he was sorry. He got locked up in a room for the night. But, um, but that's really one of the big reasons for the whole council in Nicaea. I know that popular history is trying to make it about, ooh, that's where they decided the books of the Bible. Or, ooh, that's where the Da Vinci Code all started. You know, all these weird things. But... But ultimately, it was really about this guy, Arius, uh, from Carthage, who was causing problems and, and teaching some false doctrines. So they brought everybody together to, 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 to deal with it scripturally. Anyway, um, so we, we here at Jesus' baptism is one of those events where we, we see God reveal himself in three persons to us. Incredible. Okay. Uh, let's go on to verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. I'm going to pause there for one minute. About 30 years of age. It doesn't mean he was 30 years of age. It means he was about 30 years of age. Uh, the reason this is important, if we kind of do our timeline and stuff, he might have been a little bit older than 30, but anything under 35 is about 30 years of age, okay? So, um, and, and we can go back and forth about timelines. I, I think we're about the year 28 AD, AD at this point, but... Um, some people say 26. I think 26 puts us a little bit early for the events. And we talked about that last week. If you want to know more about that timing, we looked at Luke's account of uh, the emperor and, and uh, the, those who were in power at the time. So about 30 years of age. As, uh, now, he was the son of Eli, Heli. Now, we're going to go into genealogy here. Let me go through these names for a moment. I want to see if you can catch the really special name. I'm actually just telling you this so you'll pay attention. That's it. So, son of Heli, the son of uh, Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Malki, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, 
the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of jo- Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of she- 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 Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Math, Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, Mena, uh, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, sorry, that one's a tough one for my tongue, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Now, okay, here's the important one. All the names from uh, to Nathan, Nathan is the brother of Solomon uh, and the son of David. All the names leading up to that, we don't really have much record of other than this genealogy. Now we're going to go to verse 32. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphax, the Vax, oh man, Arphaxid. Um, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. doesn't matter how many times you practice these names. It still becomes a tongue twister as you say it out loud. Okay, let me just tell you about this. Uh, Luke and Matthew's genealogy are a little bit different. Luke goes from Jesus backward to Adam, okay? Matthew goes from Adam forward to Jesus, okay? Luke traced David's line through Nathan, whereas Matthew traced it through Solomon. Now, why do we say this? Some speculate that one is the genealogy of Mary, the other is the genealogy of Joseph. We, we can't be positive on that because the scripture doesn't really tell us. Um, and certainly here in Luke's gospel, it says, uh, as was supposed, being the son of Joseph, as was supposed, that might give us a hint that, to tell us that this was Mary's genealogy um, because the, obviously there was a question of the legitimacy of Jesus. And so it's very possible that Luke chose to give us Mary's genealogy all the back way through David to show that he was the legitimate heir to the throne of David, which would also be qualified to be Messiah. Whereas Matthew goes from the genealogy of Joseph all the way back through David, which would qualify him even as an adopted son to be uh, Messiah and uh, the throne of qualified to have the throne of David. Nonetheless, here's what I want to tell you about with this. First of all, this is the last genealogy other than John's genealogy, which is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John's genealogy, which is a little bit different from the other ones. But this is the last genealogy in the Bible. And I know when we approach genealogies in the Bible, we go, man, there's so many names. Why do we have all these names? Well, the whole point of all these genealogies is to take us to Jesus, just to show the lineage from Adam through David all the way to Jesus. After Jesus, genealogies cease in the Bible. We're done with them. 
And actually, we get to even write our own name in there as believers in Jesus Christ, that we're a part of the family of God, which is pretty exciting. We were also given a heritage, although not Jew by birth or by birth from David, but certainly from Adam, uh, we have that, that uh, person in our history as well, uh, being the first created one, uh, human, first created man. And so, so we know that, that uh, we share that genealogy all the way to Adam, and of course we're adopted as sons of God. Uh, but this is the last and final geology in the New Testament, or in the Scripture. And although we don't see it as of great importance, it is, and we'll see that more in Luke, uh, referring back to this. But I want to share a story about Joanne Shetler. There's a book, and, and I'd encourage you to get it. It's called, And the Word Came with Power, and she was a Wycliffe translator. Joanne was, uh, spent years in the Philippines among the Belungao people with the goal of translating the Bible into their language. She wanted to tell them the good news of the Savior, and slowly over the years she would uh, share some things, but the goal was that translation of the Bible, and so she had, had began learning the language, and she was actually adopted by one in the tri- tribe. His name was Ama, and he became her adopted Belungao father, and she was the adopted Belungao daughter. And Ama was helping her with the translation from English New Testament into the Belongao. Well, as Ama came and visited her one day and she was working uh, with the translation, she was in the genealogy of Matthew. And Ama picked up the, the, the text and he could read enough uh, English at this point to realize what he was seeing. She hadn't even finished translating into Belongao. But as, as he saw it, he began to be amazed. And he asked her, you mean this has a genealogy in it, speaking of the word of God? She said, yeah, but just skip over that so you can get to the good part. But his eyes were still riveted to the page. You mean this is true, Amma asked, as he struggled through the list of names, just like Dave Johnson did. Shetler got some shelf paper and wrote the genealogy from Adam to Jesus from the ceiling down to the floor. Amma took it all over the village, explaining, we always thought it was the rock and the banana plant that gave birth to the people, but we don't have their names written down. Look, here are all the names written down as he carried this genealogy through the Belongao people. The Belongals loved Matthew's written genealogy. It proved to them that the Bible was true. Can you believe that? Those genealogies that you and I tend to skip over and get to the good part? They're, they're rejoicing over this genealogy. Alma came to believe in Christ as a Savior. He became an enthusiastic evangelist, church leader, and Bible translator, always sharing the genealogy of Jesus with people. And when the Belongao New Testament was finally dedicated, he got the very first copy. The power of God's word. Isn't it amazing? God knew that there were people that really needed this genealogy. And I'm sure it's more than us. But, but there's a reason why every word is in this book. And we don't want to just, even if we might not understand it, we need to understand that God has planned out every word that he might maximize those who would be saved into his kingdom. With that said, let's close in prayer. 
I want to encourage you this morning, as we, or this evening, I say I don't even know what time it is, as we talked about Jesus being the one who pleases God, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want to invite you to, to be, be, let your life be pleasing to God by being in Jesus Christ, receiving Him as your Savior, asking Him for the forgiveness of your sins, accepting Him as your Savior and your Lord. For just as Paul wrote, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this night together, and we thank you for your powerful word. I I loved reading that book, and the word came with power, and just the power of your word. And still today, I marvel at that, this idea of how powerful each and every word in this book is. Lord, we know that your word has power to save. And there's some of us in here tonight that, that need a savior. And if you're one of those who is ready to receive Jesus Christ as your savior, to call upon him. I want want you just to confess him as Lord. Lord, be my savior. I'm ready to follow you. I want want to be forgiven of my sin. Thank you for dying on that cross for me. I I want to please you. Thank you, Lord. God, we're so grateful to you for everything good in our lives, and we're grateful that we have an inheritance waiting for us. And Lord, I'm so thankful that my life pleases you because of your son. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. I'm your child. I rejoice, dear God. Thank you for this time together in your word. I pray you're blessed in our lives and in our hearts that we might glorify you in all that we do this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to, uh, I was actually looking for a verse because I couldn't remember where it was, but uh, Ephesians 5.1 Therefore, be imitators of God as his children. Let me leave you with that. Now, may God bless you and keep you. May he fill you with his peace and give you comfort. Amen.